you have to learn to accept what is and then decide on a response to it. And, and ever since I've adopted that mindset, my overall stress level has gone down significantly. And anytime I'm feeling stressed, I remind myself that I'm the one that's creating that stress because I'm resisting what is. And um, that goes back to the, the ownership component. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15 year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Alan Stein Jr. into the conversation. A highly acclaimed basketball performance coach, Allen spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and the legendary and late Kobe Bryant. Today, he is blazing trails through the corporate keynote space on how leaders and teams can utilize the same approaches in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level, as evidenced by his clients, including American Express, Pepsi, Under Armour, Starbucks, and more. Alan is also a best-selling author of Raise Your Game and the recently released Sustain Your Game. High-performance keys to manage stress, avoid stagnation, and beat burnout. We'll go deep on these much-needed topics in today's conversation. Buckle up as we welcome Alan Stein Jr. into the Playmakers podcast. Alan, welcome to Playmakers. How we doing? Oh man, I'm fantastic. I'm so pumped to be with you, Paul. We are pumped up to be with you, my friend. And so look, we're on, everyone thinks of it as they say Playmakers. Oh, is this a sports podcast? The reality is it's a people podcast. It's leadership, it's culture, it's team. It is high performance. And that's where I want to kick us off. So you are known, I'll do a little humble brag on you. You are known as a performance expert. Also, a kick-ass keynote speaker, author, like we're going to go all in to your several books. We may even have some hot off the press stuff that's going to allude to the future. But you have had the honor and the blessing of spending time with some of the most incredible high performers in the world, many in basketball. And we are going to talk about your chapters ever since. But if I were to say the late Kobe Bryant, still with us. Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, the list goes on. So now that we just established that, where I want to kick us off is you have a phenomenal, I've heard you call it a life-changing experience that you learned from Mr. Kobe Bryant. Why don't you hit us with that? Oh, I'll be happy to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much time has passed since that actual experience because part of it, I have such a visceral reaction anytime I share the story that I feel like it was yesterday. But you know, back in 2007, um, Nike flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. Uh, Nike wanted to make a commitment uh, to really mentoring and pouring into the best high school and college players uh, in the country. And they wanted to do so with their signature athletes, which of course at the time uh, was Kobe Bryant, arguably the best player in the world in 2007. And, you know, I, I've grown up my entire life enthralled in the game of basketball. Uh, and being a trainer, I had always heard this urban legend of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. So, you know, when I was fortunate enough to find myself on his camp staff, I figured, you know, this is my chance. This is my shot. So uh, my earliest opportunity, I went up to Kobe and asked if I could watch one of his private workouts. And he was incredibly gracious and said, sure, man, no problem. I'm going tomorrow at four. And I got a little bit confused because I had just got done looking through the camp schedule and the camp <laughs> schedule clearly said that the first workout with the players was the following day at 3.30. And Kobe quickly recognized that confused look on my face and clarified that with, yeah, that's 4 a.m. Well, I couldn't think of a reason why I couldn't be somewhere <laughs> at 4 in the morning, Love you know, not, not an excuse that Kobe would accept. So I'd all but committed myself to being there. And I figured if I was going to be there anyway, I may as well try and impress Kobe. You know, I may as well leave my mark and show him how serious of a trainer I was. So uh, I came up with the plan to beat him to the gym. So the next morning, I, you know, I set my alarm for 3 a.m. Uh, I wake up, I get myself dressed, uh, I hop in a taxi, 
and I head to the gym. And when I arrive at the gym, it's 3.30 in the morning. So of course it's pitch black outside. And yet the moment I step out of the taxi, now I can see the gym lights already on. I mean, even from the parking lot, I could faintly hear a ball bouncing and sneakers squeaking. I walk in the side door of the gym, Kobe was already in a full sweat. So he was going through an intense warm up before his formal workout with his trainer started at four. Well, out of professional courtesy, I didn't say anything to him. I just kind of sat down to watch. And, you know, uh, for the first 45 minutes, I was absolutely shocked. Uh, for the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player in the world do the most basic footwork and offensive moves. I mean, Kobe was doing stuff that I had taught to middle school age players. Now, this was Kobe Bryant. This was the Black Mamba. So keep in mind, he was doing everything at an unparalleled level of intensity, and he was doing everything with surgical precision, but the stuff he was actually doing was incredibly basic. Well, his workout went on for a couple more hours, and when it was over, once again, I didn't say anything to him, I didn't say anything to his trainer, I just quietly left. But my curiosity kept nipping away, and it eventually overwhelmed me to the point that I had to know. So later that day at camp, I went up to him again, and said, Kobe, I don't get it, man. You're the best player in the world. Uh, why are you doing such basic drills? And he flashed that million dollar smile and he gave me a friendly wink, but he said in a very serious tone, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. I never get bored with the basics. I mean, it, it, just, it just hit me right between the eyes that, you know, here Kobe Bryant is, the best player on the planet and someone that has truly mastered his very specific craft. And he said that his secret is that he never gets bored with the basics. And, you know, I know that may be really obvious to you and your, your listeners right now, but for me at that moment, it was a life-changing shift because in that moment, I realized that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Those words are not synonyms and yet people often use them interchangeably. Just because something's basic in theory does not mean it's easy to execute. And that lesson of a commitment to the basics and the fundamentals and not confusing basic with easy um, really shifted my life perspective and philosophy ever since. And, you know, one of the major pillars of the work I do now, whether it's from stage or on page, is, is getting folks to get crystal clear on what are the basic building blocks and fundamentals that they need to work towards mastery of during the unseen hours to be elite in that specific area of their life. And if you can get that type of clarity and you're willing to have the, the discipline and the mindset to pursue that, then there's really no limit to what you can achieve. And that was, uh, that's something, a lesson that, that, that I'm reminded of daily and I, I try and implement in everything I do in my life. Mm. And I think that's your superpower, frankly, because as I've heard you, A, you and I, we've gotten to know each other in multiple conversations, but also I've heard you in other podcasts and I mean, you're everywhere and just kudos and shout out to you, man. Like you are creating massive impact out there in the world. And when I think of your superpower, I think it's how you can translate what started in a gym. It's largely lessons of basketball and how you have learned to apply them to business. And how about this? How you've learned to apply them to life. Like there are basic, and I mean that in a beautiful way, basic life lessons, basic business lessons that you may have learned from the likes of a Kobe, but you have mastered not only applying them to your life, but what I appreciate is how simple, not easy, but simple to understand you make it for others. So let's go there. If I was to ask you, you mentioned how you've applied it at a high level in your life. But if I could challenge you and say, what are the basics that you focus on? Alan Stein Jr. What does Alan Stein Jr. focus on? What are the basics that he prides himself on the most? Well, I'll, I'll put, I love that question. I'm so glad this is the direction we're going. And I'll actually kind of put it in a, in a silo because there's, there's different 
facets of my life that I apply this principle to. I mean, I, I apply them to being the father of three children. You know, I apply them to my speaking business. I apply them, you know, in a variety of capacities. So let's look at, at, at the keynote speaking business, something, you know, that you're world class in uh, as well. You know, uh, the basic fundamentals of, of being able to be impactful and meaningful on stage, uh, you have your content, you know, the message that you're actually sharing, the the stories, the stats, the, the applicable takeaways, the actual takeaways. So you have your content, uh, you have your delivery, you know, your ability to share that in a captivating and compelling way. Uh, and then you also have the, the business of being a speaker, you know, the, the marketing, the sales, the outreach, the relationships. So, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, those are the three fundamentals um, that I focus on. And, and I, you know, um, I'm kind of toggling in and out of those three at all times. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly trying to up level and refine my content. You know, when I'm hired for a speaking engagement, I take a tremendous amount of pride in my ability to customize that message. So I have a, a massive a la carte menu of stories and stats and takeaways and things that I can share with any group, but I want to get to learn them and what what's exactly what they need. What does their audience need from me so that I can choose from that menu and customize my content? Well, then I want to make sure that I'm rehearsing it so that I can deliver it in a captivating and compelling way. You know, I, I want a certain level of intensity and passion to come out. But at the same time, I want to deliver it with some warmth and some humanity. Um, you know, I, I used to get what I would call coach face and I would get so intense almost to the point where I'm, I'm yelling <laughs> at the audience. And it's like, you know, a, a friend of mine once said, you know, are, are you having fun on stage? And I said, yeah, I'm having a blast. And they said, well, you, half the time you look so angry. And I was like, well, man, I, I guess I haven't really transitioned out of that oh, coach life. That's great feedback, by the it way. It was so helpful. Yeah. And it was a blind spot that I was unaware of. So, you know, now I try to blend a, a, a passion and an intensity with hopefully, uh, uh, you know, a, a warmth and, and, and a, a human side to that. And then, of course, it doesn't matter how well I'm doing those two things. I've got to get good at running the business of being a speaker so that I have an opportunity to actually step on stage and execute those two things. So, you know, those are kind of the initial fundamentals um, that I'm always working towards. Yeah, so I love it. So let, let's toggle back and forth here. So you took us in a direction of... Let's call it one of your primary professions. Of course, you wear multiple hats, but me like you, one of our Trojan horses or the Trojan horses, we pride ourselves on being keynote speakers and creating massive impact all over the globe. We are here to serve. It is not about us. It is about every single person in that audience. And now you mentioned a couple other hats, though. And there's a club that I'm pretty new to, which you've got a couple extra years on me. And that's the club of fatherhood. All right. So I'm a, a year and a half into the crazy rodeo as we record this. And it feels like a decade, man. And I'm fired up for you. I, I know uh, three children, roughly like 12, 10 to 12, kind of in that range. So you've been at it. If you were having a conversation with them, and I'm sure you have had these conversations about kids, these are the basics of life. And of course, you're going to keep it simple. It's going to be a short list. And I bet that this is stuff that you're hoping they hold on to in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. Like these are the things you're preparing them for. What are those couple of basics that you focus on with them that you think is equally as applicable for every playmaker listening in? Oh, man, I'm so glad you went there. And congrats on your fatherhood, man. There's nothing better. I mean, as, yeah, as, as intoxicating and electrifying as it feels to be on stage, I mean, the, the moments that you're going to experience uh, as a father will will dwarf that in some capacity. So that's, that's really cool. Um, you know, from a parenting standpoint, there are certainly things that, that I, I intentionally teach my children, but the vast majority of things I simply try to model for my children. And I try to live these principles out and live these fundamentals out. Um, you know, as uh, Ed Milet says, many things are caught, not taught, you know, that, that our kids are going to see us doing these things that, that I can give my kids a, a lecture on how important it is to be respectful. And then if they see me being disrespectful, to the valet or to a waiter or waitress or something like that, it, it undermines that principle. So while I'm far from perfect and I'm fallible and I'm flawed and I make more than my share of mistakes, I do my best to model them. And some of the big ones, uh, you know, first and foremost is, is simply being kind. You know, being kind is a choice. And, and I 
try to make the choice to be as kind and as thoughtful to as many people as I can, whether it's a stranger that I share an elevator ride with for 30 seconds, or it's someone that I've been friends with for 30 years, I do my best uh, to lead and live a life based on kindness. Uh, I mentioned respect earlier. I very much believe in being respectful of others, you know, respect the environment, uh, re respect other people, uh, respect the process. You know, I, I respect is a, a cornerstone of my parenting belief. Um, another one is humility. You know, I, I am the first to admit to my children when I make a mistake, you know, when I say something to them that I probably could have said in a, a kinder or more thoughtful way, I will apologize. And, and I want my children to see the mistakes that I make. You know, I, I don't want them to have this, this false sense of, of who I am, you know, and uh, a lot of that comes with humility. I'm, I'm a big believer that humility is what keeps all of us open to coaching. It keeps us open to feedback. Uh, humility is what says no matter how good we get, we can still get better. So, so humility is, is a, a major uh, piece of that. Uh, I also model for my children that we don't control what goes on in the world around us, but we always control our response to those things and that I want them to be very intentional and thoughtful in their responses and that life is going to throw adversity at you. They're going to, they're going to find challenges. There's going to be plenty of things that happen in the world that aren't your preference and aren't to your liking but how do you respond to those things? So those are a few that just jump up uh, immediately. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I talk to my children about these things, but more importantly, I try and model them uh, in, in the way that I behave. And I tell you what, when I, when I want to model these things for my children and I want to live in perfect alignment with the things that I share on stage, because, you know, one of my biggest fears would be that someone in the audience of one of my keynotes sees me behaving in a way that's not congruent with what I shared on stage and I automatically become a hypocrite in their eyes. I mean, that, the thought of that makes me sick to my stomach. Now, again, I recognize that I'm not perfect. I'm not batting a thousand, you know, that, that I make boneheaded mistakes and I occasionally say something that I could probably say in a, a better way. Um, but I want to, I want the person I am right now on your podcast to be the same person I'd be if you and I went out to dinner and would be the same person I'd be if one of your listeners sees me at Target tomorrow morning. You know, I want to have some congruency with that. So uh, the fact that I'm trying to live this stuff for my children and for those that I serve holds me to a very high standard of excellence and a very high standard of accountability. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And you brought up more, if you're on stage, you don't want somebody in the audience thinking about, hey, that guy's a hypocrite. I, I think I've heard you say this in the past before as well, but I know this is true for me. Sometimes we write books for ourselves. <laughs> like if I think of the principles from whether the power of playing offense or now I'm in the early stages and of almost done with the manuscript of my, my next book, which I'm happy to riff on in a little bit. Cause I think there's a ton of alignment and synergy that we have in our messages, but dude, I'm just trying to live up to that bar. Like I'm just setting the standard for myself of like, again, I'm very imperfect. Everybody is. Are we willing to admit that and own that and be aware of that and be intentional about what are we going to do about it? Like you mentioned a couple things and I want to come back to this because, yeah, uh, let's get back to performance. But before we get there, maybe these are intertwined in my second book, which is essentially around the alignment of our head, heart and hands. And I say to folks, because there's an equation that leads to green, yellow, and red lights on, do we activate our hands? Do we take action or no action? Basically, the premise is the quality of business and the quality of life comes down to two things, the decisions we make and the actions we take. That's it. Why would we leave it to chance if the stakes and the consequences are so high? And that's where I'm creating a simple equation, not easy simple, call the head, heart, hands equation on how to do that. But here's where I want to kick it back to you and you can riff on this. I believe that before I even introduce an equation, if you don't have these three things, which I'm about to share, then there is no equation that's going to help in life because I believe that we would be building our life on quicksand. So I call them the three table stakes for every playmaker. This is the ante to play in life. This is my personal view. Doesn't make it right or wrong, just a view. The three are, and then please jump in on this on your reaction. Awareness, ownership, and intention. The three table stakes to life from my personal lens are awareness, 
ownership intention. How does that land with you, Alan? Oh man, there, there! I knew we were going to have such a fun conversation because there's so much alignment between you know our, our different perspectives on life. Uh, I love that you started with awareness. Um, that was the first chapter of my first book because I believe that's the foundation to which everything else is built. I mean, you you will never improve something you're unaware of. You'll never fix something you're oblivious to. So awareness is crucial. And, you know, many times awareness is bringing something that's in our subconscious up to the conscious level. Uh, there's plenty of things that, that people do that they're just unconsciously, you know, almost zombie-like in, in doing. Um, you know, part of awareness is, <laughs> is having people around you that care enough to help you see your own blind spots. Because many of the things we do, especially things that, that undermine our performance or undermine our relationships, we're very well intended. We have, we have no idea that we're actually doing these things or that, we're, that these things are actually causing the detriment that they are. So having people around you that can tell you when your blind spots are uh, or what your blind spots are and bring them again to a conscious level uh, is crucial. So absolutely on par, love the, the uh, uh, excuse me, uh, love the awareness part. That segues beautifully into ownership. You know, I'm a, a huge believer in, and I look at ownership as, is kind of self-accountability, you know, is, is saying that I'm not responsible for what goes on in the world, but I'm responsible for guarding my yard and, and for my thoughtful and intentional responses to what goes on in the world. And, you know, inherent in, in what I'm hearing you say with ownership is, is this mindset that I'm just going to do the best I can with what I have wherever I am. And I'm not going to blame, complain, or make excuses. Um, because ultimately, yeah, when we blame, complain, and make excuses, we are skirting ownership and we're putting it onto somebody else. In essence, we're saying, this is not my fault, this is somebody else's fault. And regardless of whether that's true or not, you know, because I'm not saying there are not valid reasons to blame, complain, and make excuses. And I think we've all seen over the past two years in particular, there's been no shortage of things that would give us a valid reason to blame, complain, and make excuses. I'm just saying that it doesn't help. It never moves you forward and it never improves your situation. And, and as high performers, we want to be really efficient. We want to get rid of all of the stuff that's weighing us down and holding us back uh, so that we can continue to move forward at a, at a, a steadier clip. And that starts with, with ownership. And, uh, you know, what's so fascinating about so many of these different areas, you know, that with all of this stuff, I'm not speaking from a place of mastery. You know, this is stuff that I'm still working on and challenged by. And so many of the things that I teach now and that I, I speak about and write about were things that I massively struggled with earlier in my life. I mean, if you would have known me 20 years ago, Paul, I was the king of blaming, complaining, and making excuses. You know, I was so insecure that it was, you know, I would just deflect and, and defer blame to everybody else because nothing could be my fault. And that never led to higher performance and it certainly never led to a, a higher sense of fulfillment. So I think it took a certain amount of years or in my case, decades to reach the emotional maturity to be able to own all of this stuff. And, you know, part of that ownership. Um, hey, Alan, can I jump in on that please. real quick? Because uh, I, I, I hear, dude, oh my gosh, this is so good. And I just, I'm jumping in for playmakers here because what if I don't want to wait decades. What if I feel like this right now is that moment of emotional maturity that I need? I'm no longer the victim. I'm not going to point or blame these external circumstances. By the way, things I can't control. Is there like a bite-sized tactic or, or something? Maybe it's a mindset shift, like something that a playmaker can do in this moment if they say, you know what? I have been passing the buck. I have been pointing the finger, but those days are in the past and I just need this one nudge or this one tactic or whatever it is. What would you say to that person listening in? First, I'd say congratulations that you just made a decision that will change you for the rest of your life. And I don't want you to gloss over that. The decision to embrace humility and vulnerability, to take full ownership, uh, or as Jocko Willing says, extreme ownership, and to no longer blame, complain, or make excuses, that is a massive first step in the right direction. The second thing I'd say is be patient and be kind to yourself because if this is a habit that you have been building for years, if not decades, even when you make this epiphanal decision, 
it's not like you're going to automatically change your behavior the next morning. Like you will revert to some of these previous behaviors and, and be patient with yourself. Don't expect to go from, you know, in my case, constantly blaming, complaining and making excuses and expect to come to a full stop the very next morning. But can you make incremental progress? You know, in this example, uh, can you blame, complain, and make excuses a little less frequently than you did yesterday? And slowly kind of <laughs> wean yourself off of that. And, and part of that is, again, recruiting people close to you to hold you accountable to that. To say, Paul, you know, you're one of my, my good friends, you're in my inner circle. I recognize that blaming, complaining, and making excuses has been holding me back. It's been deteriorating my relationships. It's been undermining my performance and I'm giving you full permission to call me out when you see me blaming, complaining, making excuses, or as you said so perfectly, passing the buck. I want you to catch me doing that so that I'm aware of it and I can make steps to improve it. So don't feel like you have to go at this alone and, and exercise some patience and some grace uh, as you do that. And then the last thing I'll say is, and it's kind of piggybacks on that, is, is don't expect perfection. You know, as much as I have reduced the occurrence of blaming, complaining uh, and making excuses in my own life, I'm not immune to it. Like I'm still, I will still do that on occasion. But what I'm so thankful about the path that I'm on and the progress I've made is I now have the awareness to catch myself pretty quick. When I catch myself complaining about something outside of my control or passing the buck to someone else, I usually recognize it pretty fast and I can course correct with some internal dialogue and just kind of laugh and say, Alan, there you go again. You know, that that was the old, that's something the old Alan would do. That's not what the new Alan does. You need to take ownership. So, you know, just be kind to yourself moving forward, but don't gloss over the fact that if you are making that declaration right now, listening to this show, um, that is a massive first step and you need to celebrate that and be proud of making that decision because that already puts you in exclusive club. You know, I mean, most people walking the earth are not ready to make that commitment. They still find comfort in skirting responsibility and blaming, complaining and making excuses. So, so be proud of the fact that you're taking that step forward. All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. Five, seven. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. And to your point, this is the, one of the separators. Like I may call them table stakes, but to me, correct me if I'm wrong, how could you possibly be a high performer with a lack of awareness if you only own the good but not the bad and if you don't step in every day with intention? Again, this is not easy, but it is simple to understand. And awareness is, like you said, it's the portal to all of this other stuff. You got to be aware to own the good and the bad. You got to be aware to step into each day with intention. Without awareness, we literally are living on quicksand. And so back to you. And this is something with your latest book here. So Sustain Your Game, High Performance Keys to Manage Stress, avoid stagnation and beat burnout. So what I want to do, if stress is one and then you've got, I'm thinking stagnation two, burnout three, there is a chapter within each of those that I would love to just pick your brain. And for all of us listening in right now, you've probably experienced a tremendous amount in these very highly volatile, uncertain times that we've been in. And guess what? Oh, we're coming out of a pandemic and oh, there's this R word. There's a recession that we're pro I mean, like the, the body blows are not stopping, folks. So don't think that you're out of the stress or the burnout or the fatigue or the overwhelm. Like, no, we're in the fight. We are in the fight. So over to you. If the first part of your book, performance and managing stress, I typically hear a lot about trying to, yes, manage stress, uh, eliminate stress, reduce stress. Chapter five says using stress. 
I've never seen that, brother. I, that Even in your table of contents, that stopped me. Like, I almost wanted to start a chapter five. How the heck do I use stress? What did you mean by using stress? First, let's, let's make sure we're coming at this from the same vantage point. And I want to define stress or at least my perspective of it. And then I'm so glad yeah, that's where you went. Do. You know, I've had uh, a handful of these uh, epiphanal light bulb moments, if you will, in my life. And the Kobe Bryant lesson was certainly one of them. But a more recent one uh, was I was listening to an audio book with Eckhart Tolle, uh, kind of a modern day philosopher, for lack of a better title. And, and his definition of stress I mean, it just hit me like a, a baseball bat between the eyes. You know, he, he said stress is our desire for things to be different than they are in the present moment. That was it. That was the full stop. And, and I, it just, it, I mean, the, the hairs on my neck stood up. Like I, I felt this jolt of energy. That's fantastic. And it made me recognize immediately, again, this is after doing it differently for 40 plus years. It made me recognize that stress is not caused by what's happening around us. It's not caused by external circumstances or situations. Stress is not caused by what people say or what people do. Our stress is caused by our resistance to those things. You know, that whatever's happening in the world, our desire for things to be different, that's where the stress actually comes from. And, and I found that incredibly empowering because I've, I've long known both intellectually and intuitively that I don't control the world around me. But now I can control my level of stress based on my response to those things. And I can choose thoughtful, intentional responses that allow me to accept what is. Now, before anyone thinks I, I live in some type of fantasy land, I'm not saying for one second that the things that go on in the external world are to your liking. I'm not saying they're your preference. I'm not even saying that everything that happens in the world is inherently good. I'm saying that what's happening is actually what's happening. It is reality. And anytime you try to fight against reality, that is an argument you will lose only 100% of the time. You know, you, you have to learn to accept what is and then decide on a response to it. And, and ever since I've adopted that mindset, my overall stress level has gone down significantly. And anytime I'm feeling stressed, I remind myself that I'm the one that's creating that stress because I'm resisting what is. And um, that goes back to the, the ownership component. Now, with all of that said. And, and awareness as well, man. Like, it's crazy how connected all this yeah. stuff is. And there's no shortage of stimuli to induce a stress feeling effect. I mean, there's no shortage of things going on in the world. I mean, you just teed it up perfectly as if a two year global pandemic wasn't enough. That might shoehorn right into a, a global recession, you know. So, the, as you said, the body blows just keep on coming, but we can withstand that. We can still choose as hard as it may be. I'm not implying this is easy. We can still choose thoughtful, thoughtful responses to that. And, and just like any area, a certain level of stress is what keeps us sharp. It's what keeps us, it keeps us focused. You know, I mean, uh, uh, very similar to stress, a, a sister of stress, would be fear. You know, I, I'm also a believer that we need a certain amount of fear to keep us safe. You know, I, I believe that fear is healthy. Uh, being scared is what paralyzes. So, but think about it. We need it within some level of moderation. If, if I am too scared to leave my apartment because I'm afraid of getting hit by a car, well, that's going to be a problem. Like that's going to disrupt my life if I can't even leave my apartment. However, if I just go running out in the middle of every street, I don't look both ways. I'm not even remotely fearful of a car running me over. Well, that's probably not going to end well for me either. So I need a certain level of fear to keep me on point. It's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, you want to find that midpoint and it's the same thing with stress. You know, we want to put ourselves in environments that are going to challenge us, that are going to keep us sharp, that are going to, you know, give us a little bit of butterflies and excitement before we take that stage or uh, before we you know, lean in to kiss a new partner or whatever it may be. That stuff keeps us sharp and it's, it's very healthy. We just don't want it to go overboard to the point that it immobilizes us or, or that we, it undermines our ability to perform. Yeah, no. And this is why we're talking about this, because I love how you brought up, you introduced, you said the sister. I, I love this, how you talked about fear. So we, 
all playmakers out here, what we strive for is to have that growth mindset. Obviously, thanks to the the fine works of Carol Dweck, and now it's become more of a movement, right? Nobody wants a fixed mindset. We all want a growth mindset. Of course, that's another table stake of life, probably. But what I love is, you know, then you think of the likes of a uh, Brene Brown. Okay, you could have courage. You could have comfort. You cannot have both simultaneously. One of my core values is courage. The way I define courage, and this is how it ties back to what you said, it is standing tallest when fear and risk are highest. Meaning I cannot be courageous if I don't feel fear. I would have nothing to overcome. And so if stress, this is, that's me using fear, playing offense with fear to my advantage, and that's kind of, oh, I love this. I love this, bro. Okay, only because we got to keep the train moving, man. This is so good. We could talk for hours. Um, there's probably a lot of folks. I, I'm so, <laughs> I'm over the P word of pivot. I'm like, I've heard it 2 billion times in the last couple of years, so I'm not going to go there. But there is a word that, that you have as a chapter here that it's, reinvent. And that's kind of how I think of the purpose of a pivot, if you will, is because in many cases, there's a lot of playmakers listening in that they want to reinvent. Maybe they've been on this treadmill. Maybe they're thinking of hopping off. Maybe they've been climbing up a ladder for a couple decades and they realize, oh my gosh, I don't even think this is the right ladder. I don't even know if it's leaning against the right wall. Like I'm in need, like to our friend in the sports world, Jim Rome, the reinvention project, another phenomenal podcast. I literally one of my favorites right now. If somebody wants to reinvent, talk to us about your thoughts about reinvention, how, why you include it in the book. If somebody is looking to reinvent, how would you coach us through that process? Well, I tell you what, I, I think we could actually use your your three your three step formula of table stakes. You know, you first of all, it's going to start with an awareness. Like, why do you feel a need to reinvent yourself? What 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 has come to your awareness that you realize that what you've been doing uh, is either no longer fulfilling, uh, what you've been doing is is no longer working, um, and then of course the next step is taking ownership on that and being able to say, you know, I'm the one that has created this current life. I'm the one that's created, you know, whatever it is that I'm experiencing right now, uh, I've created this reality and I'm not blaming that on anybody else, but now I need to get crystal clear and have great intention on the person that I'd, I'd prefer to be or the job that I'd prefer to have, or again, fill in the blank with whatever it is that you're looking to reinvent. Uh, and you got to get crystal clear on that. And once you've set that intention, then you can figure out, you know, what are the steps, you know, and, and there's a, a sliding scale to that reinvention. You know, I, I kind of skewed towards one end of the spectrum and, and left an industry of basketball performance training that I had spent my entire career in. And I chose to completely reinvent myself in a brand new industry where I had no name recognition, no brand credibility, never had a corporate job in my entire life. And, and so that was certainly, you know, on one end of the spectrum, but that's not always necessary for folks. I mean, you can make some of these smaller, more incremental reinventions and change. You know, if, if you're working within the constructs of a traditional business, you know, but you're feeling that you're approaching some burnout or stagnation, you know, maybe you can assume a different role within the company, or maybe you can shift and work within a different department. You know, you can reinvent yourself. You know, maybe you go from, from being in marketing to being in sales. Sales, uh, but still work for the same company because you love the culture and, and you have great tenure there. Um, so it's, it's constantly, you know, learning and continually unlearning the things that aren't serving us and then making those tweaks uh, to reinvent. And, you know, one of the things that impresses me most in any area of life, whether it's sports or business or, or the arts, uh, is longevity and, and seeing someone that's been valid uh, in their industry for decades. And, you know, it'd be almost impossible for you to bring up any name of note and, and not know that they've, they've reinvented themselves probably a few times over. And to me, that is like, it's almost like a rebirth, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm going to be new at this again. I'm going to be a rookie. I'm going to be a novice. And I crave that. That was one of the reasons 
that I was so excited to leave the basketball training space and start something new. It was a brand new challenge and that challenge invigorated me. I admitted, admittedly was starting to get complacent towards the end of my basketball training. You know, I, I was putting on the cruise control and jumping over to the corporate keynote speaking absolutely relit my fire and I, I reinvented myself in every way possible. Hmm. It reminds me of what my former boss at the NFL league office said. He's now uh, chief business officer for the LA 2028 Olympics. And he told me this line that I'll never forget. And this was, he calls me is one of the first calls that I got when I take my Jerry Maguire leap out of the sports industry. And I, you know, I'm, I'm like in the 0.1% club of the crazies that actually lead the sports industry. So you can join me in that crazy club, my friend. But you know, what he told me was, the easiest thing to do in life is to stay on the treadmill you're on. I'll repeat that. The easiest thing to do in life is to stay on the treadmill you're on. So playmakers, that could mean a job. That could mean a relationship. It could mean a lot of things. And maybe you are in the right one. And in which case, God bless. And like, you stick with that, man. You fight to keep that. But if you're not happy, if you're not fulfilled, if you're not intrinsically, like if you're not saying, thank God it's Monday. If it's only thank God it's Friday, like that's a problem because you're going to work over a hundred thousand hours over the course of life. That's a long freaking marathon. And so, you know, you got to get some juice out of that. You got to get some juice. And that's where I'm going to take us the third section of your book. You've mentioned the word a couple of times here, but if somebody listening in your closing chapter is titled fulfillment, simple. It's one word, not simple to attain. It's simple to understand the concept. So maybe for one, I would start by asking you, what does fulfillment mean to you? And then two, kind of pass the baton to those listening in that if we haven't found what fulfills us, what should we do? But let's start with what it means to you. And then let's talk to all of our playmakers out there. I believe this quote was first attributed to Bob Marley. I hope that is correct. And uh, I actually have it tattooed on my arm and that is live the life you love and love the life you live. And, and that's kind of a, a succinct way of saying how I define fulfillment. You know, it's, it's finding meaning, it's finding joy in, in what you do, in who you do it with, you know, this, and, and I'm not even just talking from a vocation standpoint, like who you do this thing called life with, uh, and, and what you do, if you find meaning and purpose in that, um, to me, that's, that's true fulfillment. And what's been really interesting in my own journey, and I'm, I'm 46 years old at present. So I, I consider myself at about the half time of my life. I think I'm just now entering the back nine, hopefully if I keep taking good care of myself, but you know, and, and I would imagine my journey is, is very similar, at least my perspective to many of the, the high performing playmakers you have listening, you know, in my early life, in my, my twenties, I was heavily driven by material success. I wanted the external trappings of really nice things. And that was kind of my, my driver. And then as I got a little bit older into my, my early thirties, you know, I was less worried about the material items, but I, I just wanted to be successful. You know, part of that was I, I wanted the adoration and, and affection from peers and I wanted to be recognized and I, I wanted to achieve and I wanted people to know that I was good at what I did. And of course, all of this was coming from a place of insecurity, but I, I kind of went from, you know, monetary uh, being my main driver to then success being my driver. And then I think I heard some motivational speaker. It might've been uh, uh, Jim Rohn or it might've been Zig Ziglar, somebody talking about the shift from success to significance. And I don't think I really understood what that meant at the time. But I, I kind of said, okay, now I, I want to live a more significant life and I want to start taking the, the spotlight off of me and I want to start putting it on to others. Like I want to be measured by how much I'm impacting and helping others. And that was a massive transformation. And, and part of that transformation, I kept thinking to myself, you know, what, what do I want? And, and I kept hearing that we should all want to be happy, that happiness is a port, an important part of that. But my problem with happiness is that happiness is an emotion and like other emotions, it's ever fleeting. You know, no one is happy 24 seven. It expires. Yeah. So it, so happiness, I, I think the intent behind happiness being the goal is a noble one, but I think it's a constantly moving target. So what I finally landed on was instead of happiness, I want to go one layer deeper and my now ultimate goal is fulfillment. 
And part of where I derive fulfillment is through that lens of significance of am I being of service? Am I doing something of meaning? Am I making a difference in people's lives? You know, one of the mantras that I live by uh, is, you know, a, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. You know, am I using... Ooh, hit us with that again, brother. Hit us with this that This is again. one of my favorite mantras. And I don't know who said this first. This is not an Allen Stein Jr. original, but it's a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. You know, if I have a candle and I light yours... It doesn't take any of the light away from mine. Mine's still fully lit, but now so is yours. And now if you go light someone else's candle, we've got something really special. And that's kind of how I view significance. And that's actually where I derive my fulfillment from. So that's kind of the stage I am now. And, you know, do I still like nice things? Absolutely. Do I still want to be financially free and provide for my children? 100%. But those things are no longer the driver for what I do. Fulfillment is the ultimate North Star. And I'm a believer that those external trappings, if I so choose to have them, will just be a byproduct of my pursuit of actual fulfillment. Mm. So good. And so many places we could riff on this. One of the quotes that I know, and I'll attribute it to Tony Robbins, success without fulfillment is failure. Success without fulfillment is failure because fulfillment is the scoreboard that counts. And we weren't trained at a young age to think like this. I'm not knocking society again. I am not passing the buck, not blaming parents. I'm not blaming society. I'm not blaming my teachers. I'm not, I'm just saying, I like you, we can attribute it by decades. Let's play that game. But man, I was heavy on the success train, man. I was heavy, dude. And I don't regret it. I don't regret it because I had to feel some of that pain. I had to feel some of that tension. Like in the dating game, my, my fun analogy is you got to date some crazy to eventually find the one. <laughs> you know, like, I, dude, I dated a lot of crazy, man. <laughs> but I needed that because then... When I found the one, like, dude, in a matter of moments, I was like, wow, this is really different, you know, and I wouldn't have had that perspective, dude. So, yeah, look, fulfillment, I, I think it's a, a wonderful thing. And the way I, I define success and significance and love to get your take on it, success is serving yourself. Significance is serving others. And I have found many people in life that are successful, but don't feel significance and yet, yet, I don't know a single person that feels significance and is not successful. Man, I, I've never heard it put so succinctly and so clearly. And I think you, you hit the nail right on the head there. And that, that most beautifully encapsulates kind of my, my approach to that. And yeah, I mean, I, I can say now with the gift of hindsight and humility, yeah, I mean, these first several decades of my life, it was it was all about me. I was so worried. And that came from a place of deep insecurity, a feeling of deep unworthiness of was I not good enough? So, you know, if in your if in your gut, you don't think you're good enough, then the next best thing you have is, well, I'll I'll prove to everyone I'm good enough by being successful and I'll do whatever I need to do to, again, uh, uh, get those external trappings, to have certain levels of achievement, to get certain accolades so that now everyone else on the outside will think I'm worthy and think I'm good enough. And it just you, you can't work from the outside in. You know, it wasn't until I realized that allowing myself to be humble and vulnerable and know that that I'm good enough as is like, I don't have to go out and to achieve to, to feel a sense of fulfillment and to be of service to others. And, you know, to me, that's, that's the best part. And, and where I'm incredibly grateful is the fact that I'm only 46 years old and I've started to kind of figure this out. Like there, I would imagine there's people, well, first of all, we, there's probably people that never come to this conclusion. And then there's people that might come to this conclusion. Yeah, and that's a, that's a shame, but it's a fact, but yeah. it's a shame. And then yes. there's people that don't yeah. come to this conclusion until they're 60, 70, 80 years old, and they're probably left with more sting of a regret. You know, you, you, I don't regret the fact that this was the path that I'm on, because at that time, I was doing the best I could with my level of awareness. I just didn't have very much awareness. You know, I, I just didn't really know what was going on, but it, it wasn't because I was immoral or it wasn't because I was unethical. It wasn't because I was stupid. It was simply because I had no idea. And now that I have the idea, I'm thankful that's the path I was on because now 
I say with full optimism, my best days are still ahead of me and I've lived a great life. I still think my best days are in front of me. So, you know, I never mind reminiscing and, and, and looking back at some fond memories of the past, but most of my focus is on the present moment and having the optimism to believe that my best days are still ahead. And, and this is part of that perspective. And I also know that, that my perspective will continue to evolve as I hopefully work closer to more self-actualization. I mean, I'm, I'm not for one second saying I have life figured out at 46. I just say that I'm thankful for what I have figured out by 46. I hope I'm even wiser at 56, 66, 76, 86 and keep it going. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I have no doubt that you will, my friend. So before we cut out of here, I have one final quick hit question. But before we get there, dude, I promise you every playmaker listening in is like, oh, my gosh, like, where do I find more about Alan and where do I get more about his books? And like, hey, if I wanted to bring you in as a speaker, talk to us. How can playmakers find you, follow you? Please guide us closer to you. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I, I knew this was going to be a great time. I love everything that you do in your work. And if folks are interested in more, um, allensteinjr.com is the main, the main speaking site. I have a supplemental website, strongerteam.com, that has some additional info on, I do some one-on-one -on -one coaching and my podcast and books. Uh, I'm very easily found on social media, at allensteinjr. Um, I take a lot of pride in not only being accessible, but being very responsive. So if anyone has a question or or wants to share something, just shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn. I'll get back to you. And then of course, if, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in either book, you can get raise your game or sustain your game on Amazon or audible, uh, wherever you get your books. But, but I'm going to throw a challenge out to your playmakers. If any of you, um, you know, are, are yeah, meeting planners or decision makers in the conferences or events that, that you hold or looking to bring in people to your company. Uh, one of my goals is to share the stage with this man right here with Paul Epstein and if you can find a way to bring us both in, I give you my word, we will we will change the game for your organization or for your oh event. Uh, and nothing would make me happier than than to be Paul's opening act and get that stage all warmed up for him. <laughs> I think I would be the opening <laughs> act. But uh, regardless, look, game on, challenge on for everybody <laughs> listening in. I would lock arms and meet at the 50 every single day of every single year with this man, Alan Stein Jr. So, dude, you're awesome. Closing quick hit. Advice. Number one piece of advice that you have either given or been given. You can take it either way. Leave us with that. And we're going to exit stage left. When I was in middle school, uh, a coach said, Alan, you need to find what it is that you love to do. You need to find it, what it is that you're naturally pretty good at. And you need to find where those two things intersect. And, and that point of intersection will be your strength zone. So find what you're passionate about, find what you're pretty good at, and find where those two things crisscross. And that point of intersection will be your strength zone. And he said, the more time you can invest in your strength zone, uh, the higher you'll perform but the more fulfilled you'll feel. And I'm very thankful that even though my point of intersection has changed a lot over the years, I've lived by that ever since. Uh, and it, and it's, done me, it's done me well. Again, I've lived an extraordinary life thus far because I'm constantly combining things that I love with things that I'm naturally fairly decent at. And, and I think that's a recipe that can be applied to young or to old. And it's certainly one that I adopt in my life all of the time. Mm. Playmakers, go attack that strength zone. Alan Stein Jr. from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, brother, for being on Playmakers. My pleasure. This was so much fun. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.